I do want to start us off with a bit of a, uh, a generational question. This is uh, primarily going to be a question for a generation or two younger than myself even. I know I come across as a very young man. I'm not. <laughs> as a matter of fact, I was on the lake yesterday with some friends, uh, and I am very aware of how old I am right, right at this minute. I feel like I should be walking like this because every muscle in my body right now is sore. Uh, and that's a good thing. I'm very, very happy to do that and uh, have fun with, uh, with, with friends. But anyway, generational questions. I, and I'm just going to ask for a show of hands, okay? And I, I will not ask any follow-up questions. So you are free to vote, and I'm not going to inquire any further. How many of you at some point in your life, again, this is very generational, but I'm going to contextualize it, okay? How many of you at some point in your life have broken up with someone over text message, using text messages? No one? No one? Okay, look, I, I'm not here to criticize. I, I, I get why breaking up with someone uh, over text message has its appeal. <laughs> but, but why would, okay, let's, since we're all saints and none of us have ever done it, why would someone want to do it? Why would someone want to break up with someone over a text message? Confrontation? You're chicken? You don't have to see them face to face, right? Huh? Save time. It's <laughs> right. You want to be efficient with your time and you want to get on to the next good thing. Yeah. I'm of the age that asked the same question about the telephone. Do you know what that is? <laughs> the telephone. Have you ever broken up with someone over the telephone? That was a question from back in my day. And it was for all the same reasons. It had all the, the had text messaging been available back then, I'm sure it would have been utilized in my generation uh, at, at a dating age. I'm sure I would have used it. But for, for breaking up back in that time, the higher expectation was to have that kind of conversation in person, in person, not over the phone. You know, that, you can't break up with someone over, over the phone. You, you got to have it face to face, right? Here's another example, same variety, not, not in the dating world. But uh, when I was in high school, I had a guitar teacher that, I wanted to break up with. <laughs> I no longer, longer wanted to take lessons from him. He was a great guy, but, uh, but uh, he was even a good guitar player, but I had my reasons. So uh, he just wasn't right for me. So, <laughs> so I didn't have, it's not you, <laughs> it's not you, it's me. Uh, so uh, I, I didn't have the heart to tell him uh, in person, okay, uh, or, or the guts, uh, you might say, and uh, in, in face to face. So I wrote him a letter. And I mailed it to him with a stamp and an envelope, okay? And I put it in the mailbox. And here's the thing. I mailed him the letter. I had my timing all worked out. I, had, I mailed him the letter, so I took a lesson from him on a Monday. I put it in the mailbox on the, the immediately after I took the lesson, so I knew it had all week to get to him. So I know for sure that it was going to arrive to him before the next lesson. He'd get the breakup letter that I'm not going to be there next week. The problem was I got a call from him on Tuesday saying, hey, can we start next week's lesson a half hour later? So I had to tell him, yes, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> to this day, I hope he received the letter. Uh, so I wasn't good with confrontation back then. Uh, today, today, we're beginning a new study, new study in the book of Ephesians. And as much as possible, we're going to go verse by verse in this study. 
verse by verse, chapter by chapter. I, we may even run out of time before we get to the end of the summer, and we'll just deal with it then. But what I like about this kind of study is going verse by verse. Guess what? There, there's no getting around the confrontational. And there's a good bit of confrontational within the book of Ephesians that we have to meet head on and, and not... Uh, and not just uh, send a letter to it <laughs> and hope that says, see you never, and, and, but we're uh, just to face it, fa- d- directly look it right in the eye. And I think that's perhaps the most beneficial component of doing this kind of study. It forces you to wrestle through the tough parts. You can't get around it. You can't get around it. You got to go, you got to, you got to figure out what the word means, what the context means, all those kind of things. It's so easy. And I, and don't get me wrong. I, it has its appeal to be able to go and, 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 and do topical studies. I love doing topical studies, but quite frankly, you can cherry pick topical studies, right? But a verse by verse, chapter by chapter, exploration of, of what's in a book of the Bible. There's no getting around the tough stuff. You got to do it. You got to do it. You got to look it right in the eye. And, uh, and part of the, the, the good thing about that is when you do that, when you wrestle with the Bible, when you wrestle with the Bible, that's where the growth happens. That's almost true for anything in, in, as a Christian. Anytime you're wrestling with people, uh, with, with your fellow congregants, with your family, there's growth in there. For the Christian, there's growth. There's always potential for growth there, and, and you got to embrace it, okay? Uh, so first things first, when we get into a study like this, we want to ask a little who, what, when, and why about the book, okay? So first off, who wrote the book of Ephesians? Paul, the Apostle Paul, all right? Uh, well, um, what about, uh, uh, who was he writing to? The church at Ephesus. Now, now some, for some people, these might seem pretty obvious, right? Like, well, you know, it's, it's pretty much in the first line. Paul, the Apostle, and you won't find many, many scholars who disagree with that. They're, they're pretty much on board with the idea that Paul wrote the book of Ephesians, or this, uh, this, uh, this epistle. Uh, and this is how the book begins, in fact, okay? It says, Paul... Very first word, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Okay, now the, it, the letter explicitly states, this is Paul. This is Paul writing a letter. And so again, great. Uh, what more is there to argue? But listen, this was a big deal back then. There were, there were, you know that there are numerous letters out there, numerous epistles out there. All And some people say, well, that was written by an apostle. Why didn't it make it in the Bible? Why, why, why is this letter authentic versus a, a Gospel of Thomas, for instance? Okay, there's a great deal of textual criticism that went into books like this that made it into the Bible. Okay, uh, in, the, in, the, in the first century Roman Empire, letters were usually transmitted uh, through a known person, by, uh, known by both the, the recipient and the sender. Okay, the practice would guarantee the original copy's genuineness, and it was most often a personal friend or some kind of co-laborer of the writer that would deliver the letter. I'm writing you a letter. I'm going to send it by way of someone we both know. I'm going to give a letter to, to Nathan, and Nathan is going to take that letter to Mike, and Mike is going to know that it's authentic because Nathan says, you and I both know. Okay, I, Nathan says, you, I know you and I, you know me, and that testifies to its genuineness. And this was a common practice in the Roman Empire established by the Roman authority themselves. This wasn't just some, you know, thing. They were trying to ensure not just for, for biblical context, but for any context, if someone was sending a letter, you had to know that it was genuine. And so this letter was subject to that kind of criticism. And so that's, that's why we can know with a high degree of certainty that this was written by Paul. Okay, that's a big deal because we're also saying that Paul is an apostle. Do you understand apostleship? What do we mean by apostleship? Disciple and apostle aren't synonymous, okay? If you're an apostle, 
that means you've been given verbal authority to speak. If, if, I, gave, if I gave Howard apostleship to speak on my behalf, that means wherever Howard goes, he can speak uh, with the same authority as if I were there myself speaking. And so when Paul says, I'm an apostle, so I'm speaking on behalf of Christ, and not only am I speaking on behalf of Christ, Christ himself gave me that authority in person, verbally. Okay, so not anyone can claim to be an apostle. Just a bit of information there. So if someone claims to you right now, comes up to you and said, Hi, my name's the Apostle Eric. <laughs> say, no, thank you. No. <laughs> Just say the conversation doesn't need to go any further. Okay, so again, th- this, this all guarantees the authenticity of the letter. Okay, and then all the letters of the Bible were, were, uh, were put to the same sort of scrutiny. That's something that you know, a lot of people don't realize too. It's not when the, when the Bible is assembled, not until the 300s and 400s, people think like, how can we trust that? The scriptures already had authority before they were canonized into one book of the scriptures. They already had authority because of these sorts of factors. It wasn't until the three, four hundreds in the church councils where they put them all together based on their authority. It wasn't like creating a mixtape back in the days. You remember the mixtapes? Oh, ah, like some Duran Duran and maybe a little bit of Scorpions and, and let's, let's, have, let's have a, <laughs> you know the Scorpions, right? Let's have a mixtape. No, they recognized the authority of all these letters that were out there, the ones that were already being used in the church, and they bound them, bound them together and said, this is the definitive word of God, and we can trust it because it already has authority. Not that we've given it authority. It already has it. They acknowledge the authority that, the, that these books already had. Okay, and uh, let's see. This is, again, customary practice. Let's look at the end. This is one other thing I want to point out here, the end of the book of Ephesians really quick. Hopefully it doesn't spoil it for you. This is not like, oh, no, we found out who done it. Uh, Ephesians 6, 21 to 22 says this. So uh, that you also may know how I am and what I am doing. Tychicus, it's a, is anyone considering naming their next child Tychicus? <laughs> The beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord will tell you everything. I have sent him uh, to you for this very purpose. I sent him to you that you may know how we are and that we may encourage your heart. See, this is more than just a a courier. This is not just someone taking a letter. This is someone that is going to confer information, tell you how we're doing. Okay, and, and give you more than, than just a, uh, here's a letter, see, I gotta go, gotta go, get to my next stop. Okay, so it's, it's authoritative, it's, it's, it's genuine. Uh, as an aside, because of this sort of practice, again, this is why we can acknowledge uh, the authority of this. So if, uh, if Paul is the, is the author of this letter, who's the audience? We said the, it's addressed uh, to the, the Ephesians, church at Ephesus, okay? Who are the Ephesians? We're told in the second half of verse one, second half of verse one, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Okay, so who are the saints? In other translations, it's rendered as God's holy people. The Greek word there is hagios, okay? (laughs) Which can be translated as saints or holy, just the word holy. In other words, it's kind of like saying holy ones, okay? Uh, Same word. It's the same idea. Who are God's holy people? Who are God's holy people? Huh? Believers. Those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus. I think there's a couple of people wandering outside looking to get in. We have a couple of chairs up here if if someone wants to help them get in, if if that's okay. Uh, Holy. Okay, yeah. What would you say? Those Those who are in Christ Jesus. God's holy people. They're the church. It's the church, okay? So this letter is aimed, is this, is this letter aimed at believers or non-believers, primarily? 
believers. Okay, this, this letter is primarily aimed at believers, written to believers, primary audience. They are the saints. They are the holy people. Okay, can someone tell me a definition of the word holy and by extension holy people? What's, what does holy mean? I, say again? Set apart, okay, literally means, and I think I even preached about this a couple weeks ago, it's the idea that comes from the definition to, to cut and to separate, to cut and to separate, all right? Uh, that's, what, that's what holy means. That's what holy people means. It's not only that they're, they're literally cut apart from the rest and separated. They're altogether separate. Okay, so it's the people of God who he's set apart for himself. These are the holy people, cut and separated. That's important to remember in terms of context when you read this book, when you encounter a difficult passage, right? Your first question should always be an inquiry about context. Who's his audience? Who's his audience and how might that affect the way that we read and understand it today? All right, so that's the who, a little bit about the what. What about the what? Uh, the what is a letter. It's a letter. Paul's writing a letter to the church, and this was likely uh, a letter that was read aloud to the church. Okay, imagine this, a gathering, something like we do on, on Sunday, uh, Sunday morning, but it might have been at someone's house. Uh, and uh, after singing songs, after worshiping together, after greeting one another, uh, they open a letter. They open a letter, and it says, uh, I no longer want to take guitar lessons from you. No, 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 I didn't say that. <laughs> A letter from the Apostle Paul written directly to them, directly to that church. And this letter might have been circulated to other nearby churches as well, meeting in other homes. Now imagine that. When we read a passage, we're trying to understand original meaning, right? And, and then we try and ascertain how that, how that impacts us, how, how we're supposed to, to apply that to us today. Okay, for them, it was a letter written to them. Isn't that crazy? They're reading the scriptures because, again, authoritative comes from the pen of the apostle, and it's to them. There's no like, well, how do we apply this? toward? No, it's to you. This letter's to you. That blows my mind when I think about it. This is to you. It comes from the mouth of the apostle. Does that make sense so far? Are we so far so good? Okay, letter transmitted from the mouth of an apostle to that church, to that very church, okay? So we've got a sense of the who and the what. Now, what about the when and the why? If we dig into the when of the book, uh, we're going to uncover a little bit of the why. So when was the letter written and delivered? Here's a little bit of backstory on Paul and the church in and around Ephesus. For nearly three years, probably from the summer of about 52 AD to 55 AD, so this is soon after Christ, okay, very soon after Christ, Paul had established his headquarters in Ephesus. And not only did he plant a strong church in that city, uh, but with the help of a number of friends, they evangelized the whole area. And the, the gospel began to spread. And then after that period, he moved on from Ephesus, but he kept close, in close contact with the churches of Asia. And, and even other some members would come to see him uh, when he was imprisoned in Rome. And uh, one of these visitors that came by to see him was a guy by the name of Epaphras, who helped Paul establish a number of churches all throughout Asia, including the church at Colossae. Well, during, which we get the book of Colossians from. Uh, during one of his visits to Paul, he brought him news that there was this heresy making its way through the church, especially at that church at Colossae. So the basics of what that heresy was all about, it, it, not super clear, but the best we understand it was along the lines of, hey, do you want to be a super Christian? Like a super Christian. Not just a Christian, but do you want to be a, a super Christian? I, I know, I know you know, listen, Christ has already done some wonderful things, but, but listen, you can be a, a super Christian, if you're so enlightened, only if you're, you're so enlightened. Uh, and that, that's, you know, that's a maybe. In other words, they were making room for Christ. They were allowing for the, the validity of, of, of Christ and, and, and his work, but denying his supremacy, 
his supremacy, the completeness of his redemptive work, once and for all work. So this prompted Paul to write a letter to Colossians, developing the, the theme of Christ's person and work in relation to the whole universe, okay, including all those components which were, which were being pushed in that specific heresy. Christ wasn't just a component of salvation. He was everything. He was, he was, he's the backbone. He's, the, he's everything of, of salvation. Everything and everyone owes their existence to Christ. He was and is everything. So again, not just in terms of salvation, but in terms of why we, we live and breathe, you know, why we have existence because of Christ, the supremacy of Christ who holds all things together, we're told in that book. Okay, and, and what he keeps hinting at in this letter to the Colossians, that if, if Christ is the end-all, be-all, and his people, his body, are, are, are closely tied to him, what's their role in the universe? What does that mean for you? All right, what, what is the church's relation to the universe over what Christ is, over which Christ is enthroned? What's their eternal purpose? So he didn't directly answer those questions in Colossians. He, he got to a lot of it. Uh, but it's almost as if, in, uh, if these ideas continued to swirl around Paul's head once he finished the book or the, the letter to the Colossians. And once he finished it, then he began writing another letter, perhaps a letter to the church at Ephesus. And a lot of the questions maybe you might think were unanswered in Colossians are now being detailed for us in the book of Ephesians, the letter to the Ephesians. In fact, here's the closing letter to the Colossians. This is from Colossians 4, 7 to 8. <gasps> Who's back? <laughs> Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He's a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. That's almost identical to what we read in Ephesians. It's almost the very same thing. It's almost like what he said in, in, uh, in, in Colossians. Now he's carrying over again in Ephesians. We at least have to factor in the idea that what Paul is saying to the Colossians has a thread of connection to what he wanted to tell the Ephesians. See, because at, at, at first glance, it doesn't appear that Paul's letter to the Ephesians has any direct purpose. Meaning, for instance, his letter to the Galatians, he was, he was addressing a heresy, the, the Judaizers, uh, and, and uh, to the Colossians, same thing. Letters to the Corinthians was a rebuke because the church was acting crazy. They weren't acting like the church is supposed to act. But the letter to the Ephesians, well, there's not really a direct reason stated. Uh, but maybe he was writing, you know, uh, directly before this letter to inform us of something. Uh, so what can we say for certain that this letter is about? I, I don't know, but there's a lot of encouragement in it. It's just a lot of encouragement that this is the church. This is who you are as the church. Christian and church, here's, here's, here's a reminder of what the church should look like. And that's why we've entitled this study what we've entitled, How to Build a Church. Because a lot of the foundational elements you find that goes into building a church, making a church what a church is, is found right here in the book of the Ephesians. And again, that's why I say there's a lot here that we, we have to wrestle head on with because it's so foundational. So many things here. OK, so that's what we've got so far. A little bit of the who, the what and the why. Uh, what about the when? I've already uh, made the suggestions to you that, that Colossians and Ephesians were written around the same time and even carried and, and delivered by the same person. Is there anything within the text itself that, that tells us uh, Ephesians and Colossians were written about the same time? Yes. Later on in the book of Ephesians, the beginning of chapter 3, beginning of chapter 4, as well as the end of chapter 6, Paul tells us he's in lockdown. He's in prison, okay? Uh, he's a prisoner. In, in all likelihood, this would have been around the year 61 AD, okay? He's in jail. And in the years after 
He had established the church in the Ephesus. He found himself in prison, others in the area too. Uh, this would have been during his Roman imprisonment, which was about a two-year period. Karen, I hate to tell you this, but there are some chairs right up front here. These are the highest, highest cost seats in this class. You won't find... <laughs> She's going to sit there. She says, no, thank you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So he was in prison about two years. Two years. Uh, so he would have been writing this letter to the church as backward as it seems to encourage the church. We don't, we don't, we don't tend to think this way these days. If one of us uh, were to be in prison unjustly, generally speaking, I think a lot of us would feel discouraged. Uh, we, 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 would, we would think how awful it is that one of us was unjustly and unfairly in prison. Why would, why, why would this be an encouragement to the church? How could it be an encouragement to the church that Paul is in prison? Why is this an encouragement to the church? What, what reasons can you possibly fathom? Who's talking? Okay. He's just going against the grain of what's been taught. It's going against the establishment. Sticking it to the man, maybe, right? He's having an impact. He's having an impact. Where is he having an impact from? From jail. How is it that he's having an impact from jail? How, How influential are prisoners? Well, not very, but yet he's still, he's having an impact. Were you going to say something else? He still believes, despite, his fa- despite his, the circumstance that he finds him in, himself in, which is pretty awful, he still believes. He says, I've not wavered. And, and does it do you good to hear something like, do me good? Uh, because I know my circumstances are not as bad as his. And if he can be, if he can be uh, in this frame of mind, what does that say about me? Um, I, I had a medical incident almost eight years ago now that put me in the hospital for a few days. Uh, my, eight years ago, my kids were, were, were still pretty young. Uh, at the time, my, all my kids knew was your dad had to go to the hospital. They took him in an ambulance across town, and he's going to be okay. He's going to be okay. Now, as I was in the hospital bed, uh, I, I wanted my kids to come see me. Why is that? Is that a good idea? Bring your kids to the hospital so they can see their dad in this condition? Yeah, I wanted them to see me. I wanted to see me, number one, as much as I like the idea of my kids thinking of me as Superman, <laughs> right? Uh, this is a clear picture that shows I'm not. I'm not. In fact, none of us are. But also, I wanted them to see for, my, for themselves that I was going to be okay. I was going to be okay. Being in the hospital does not always mean bad stuff. And, and it means that, that people are caring for me. I'm in good hands. And I want them to see that. I want them to have an awareness of that. In fact, uh, they put on their true displays of their personalities. You know, when they came to see me, they each had their specific questions for me when they arrived. My youngest son asked me, Dad, did they run the siren when you rode in the ambulance? (laughs) He's going to be just fine. Just fine. My oldest son said, Dad, how much is all this going to (laughs) cost? In other words, Dad, how much is this... How much is this going to affect my quality of life, Dad? I get that you're in the hospital bed, but what about me, all right? You don't have to worry about that, son. You don't have to worry about it. But here I am. I'm in a prison. I'm in a position of weakness. I'm in a position of weakness, yet telling my, you know, yet telling my kids, it's okay, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. It's going to be all right. It's going to be all right. In Paul's mind, receiving a letter from him in prison would greatly encourage his readers. One of Paul's main themes in Ephesians was to promote the unity 
to promote the unity of the body of Christ, to pray that his audience would develop this deep love for Jesus and in sending word about his condition, his imprisoned state, Paul would help readers develop empathy and solidarity with him. And the Ephesians would learn how the great love of Jesus was was operating, even though Paul was in, of all places, a prison. The spreading of the gospel would not stop just because Paul was imprisoned. This is, of course, is a great encouragement. Does, Does that make sense? You get that? This, this is why. It almost makes no rational sense. Why, why is him being in prison encouragement? Because of all those things. You know, it's very counterintuitive. Any questions so far? Anything else or observations? Comments? Good. Keep going. How much time we got? At least another 10, 15 minutes. We're just getting started. Okay, as you might have noticed, the, the title, again, we put outside in this, How to Build a Church, studying the book of Ephesians. And the reason I picked that title is because that's, again, basically what we've got here in the book of Ephesians. It's not a letter to chastise. It's not a letter to, to correct heresy. This is a letter of encouragement and instruction to the church on how to be the church, how to be the church. Now, I, I know many of you are ter- uh, familiar with the term sanctification. Can anyone tell me what sanctification is? What's sanctification? Oh, come on, you know this. Don't be afraid. Our growth to be more like Christ. Very well stated. Did I put it up here? This is, this is how it's answered in the, in the Shorter Catechism, which uh, Emily just succinctly said, Sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God, after the image of Christ, and we are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. Die unto sin this is what we do. This is what we're called to do. Die unto sin day to day, live unto righteousness. So when we think about sanctification, we tend to think about it on an individual level. You know, how, how am I being sanctified? Okay, rightfully so. We're saved as individuals. We're sanctified as individuals. We are renewed in the whole man after the image of God. The whole man after the image of God. Yet, we're also part of a body. We're part of a body. So what does sanctification look like when it happens in the church at large? This is a, this is a good question right now. This is a really good question right now. What does sanctification look like when it goes through a church body? Okay, I I think that's what we see in Ephesians. And I think what we'll also discover is that for change to take place on the corporate level, it has to happen first on the individual level. It has to happen on the individual. That's where it must begin, on the individual level, before it can spread corporately. Now, what we read about in, in Ephesians is that the church, the body of Christ, is a new community created to be the the dwelling place of God and the vehicle for his spirit. And and in Romans 8, Paul tells us that creation at present, I love this imagery, creation at present is is frustrated and and is in bondage to to futility and decay. But one day, one day it's going to be emancipated. And this bondage to, to share the liberty of the glory of the children of God. And so this is what we get in Ephesians. It's almost an instruction manual of sorts that teaches us and moves us closer to that reality. Okay, so let's see how far we can get today. We just got a few more minutes, but uh, we're going to begin with the first three verses of Ephesians 1. And it goes like this. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us 
in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So what we have is a somewhat standard, fairly brief greeting from Paul in verse 1 uh, and 2, which, which we already talked a little bit about the who a moment ago, and then and he passes grace and peace along to the believers. Do you know what he, why, why grace and peace is significant? You might have heard this from Scott not too long ago. Why is grace and peace significant? Both Jewish and Greek greetings. Grace to you, was common in, in, uh, in the Greek world. Peace, shalom, very common in Hebrew. So Greek and Hebrew, grace and peace. Uh, so wonderful. Paul, the, the uh, apostle of the Gentiles, bringing the worlds together here. Okay, grace and peace. Um, then in verse 3, he speaks about every spiritual blessing in Christ. Okay, this is, I know why I, I, I love doing this. This is why I love going through these types of studies, verse by verse, word by word, phrase by phrase. What does he mean? We might just read, read through that if we're reading the Bible. Uh, what does it mean exactly when Paul speaks of every spiritual blessing? We're just going to read by that and it's like, what, what does that mean? We don't, we don't, should we stop and contemplate? What, is, what do we mean every spiritual blessing? What does that mean? Who has an idea? Anyone? Give me your best shot. Where's my coffee? I'm going to take a drink of coffee. Huh? Say again. No blessings that come from No blessings. Only God alone has given us the spiritual blessings. Were you going to say something else? Virtues. Virtues? Yeah. Something else? Every spiritual blessing. And again, I, what I'm going to tell you is just what I see here. So none of these can be wrong. I mean, they can be wrong. You could... <laughs> It, it, it's fine. I don't know what you're going to say. So with that, does someone want to make another guess? It's that picture that everything that we need for godly living, for walking down, that he will supply. Everything, everything that we need, everything that we need. Look at this. Okay. Something that, uh, that uh, about my kids uh, that I don't know whether I should be proud or concerned about, perhaps somewhere in between, is my kids, are, or my one in particular, is getting good at saving money. That's good, right? Okay. Uh, the bothersome element of them getting good at saving money is that they still ask me for so many things. <laughs> Dad, will you buy a new case for my phone, for instance? How much is it? $14. Now, $14 is, is not nothing. I can afford $14. That's not even a meal at a restaurant anymore. $14. You, 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 can't, even, you can't even go to... Uh, fast food for $14, it seems like. Uh, so I say to him, son, you have, you have more money in your bank account than I could have ever dreamed of having when I was your age. Go ahead and spend your own money to buy it. You can afford it. Nah. <laughs> That's so irritating. You know why? If you really want this, if you really want, how much are you willing to spend for it? Nothing. I'd rather spend your money than, than mine. That's what he's saying. So how much you really need this? Trudy, were you going to say something? Yes, <laughs> same one. Same one that was concerned. He's going to be, a, he's very into computers, so <laughs> I don't know, maybe he should be an accountant. But the point is, he, ha he has access to the necessary means to buy for himself this phone case, assuming that he really needs one, okay? And that's where the illustration breaks down, to tell you the truth, but I, I don't know that he needs one. But let's just, let's just say he does. He has a need and the means to address that need, but yet he decides to go without it. He decides to go, now the book of Ephesians is written for people just like that. Just like that, who need a phone case. No. People who refuse to take advantage of the wealth that they have access to. 
the, the kind of believer who goes through life starving to death because they don't partake in the feast. Okay? They don't realize their own wealth. They don't understand that they've received every spiritual blessing. So what does it mean for every spiritual blessing? L- look what we have here in the opening verses that, uh, of Ephesians where we're first introduced to the concept of every spiritual blessing. Paul follows that tag with verse 3, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. If you have your Bibles, look on verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood. Are you noticing a pattern here? What's the pattern here? When you, when you become a Christian, when you put your faith in him, when you, when you rest in him, you are put in him. Okay, you are grafted into him. You become his body, his hands, his feet. You're put in him so that everything that he has is yours. You become united with Christ. Do you, ever, do you ever stop and contemplate what that means to be united with Christ? If you just take some time to think about that, what it means to be united in Christ, you will become overwhelmed. You will become overwhelmed. All right. In most places in the world, generally here in the U.S. too, if not for the legal gymnastics in which we engage, when you marry someone, you become united with them. And what that means is if you're someone who's dreadfully poor, if, if you don't have two nickels to rub together, And you marry someone who's fabulously wealthy. The moment you marry that person, you become united with that person and everything they have is now yours. You're no longer in poverty. You're in wealth. This is is what I love about the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth might be my my, my favorite Old Testament book because it's this, this picture. It's a picture of Christ. It's a picture of our relationship with Christ, an immigrant who's gleaning in the fields, essentially taking the leftovers from around the, 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 the edges of the crops. She marries Boaz, When she becomes united with him, she is no longer poor. She has all her kinsmen, redeemers, wealth, all of it. It's a picture of you and me with Christ. That's the same picture that we carry. When you you trust Christ, his wealth becomes yours. His position becomes uh, yours. His position earned before the Father is now yours. You know, you're you're justified is the legal term. You're justified before him now. Romans 6, 5 says this, for... If we have been united with him in death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. That means when you believe, God treats what was legally given to Christ as now yours because you are united with him. The resurrection he earned, he earned, is now your resurrection. You're going to have the same resurrection. Same thing. Same thing. That's such a critical component to understand as a Christian. If you're saved, you're saved period. You're saved. You're not partially saved. You're not almost saved. You're either saved or you're not. And and you're either in him or you're not. And to be in him is really just to know and understand that what he did, what he earned, has been credited to you as if it were yours. And, And when you have that, if you have that, legally, you are free. Legally, you have the same standing as Christ does before the Father. Do you understand this? This is the wealth that you have. You are not looked down upon as something less than. You are looked at with the righteousness of Christ draped over you. And as he sees his own son is how he sees you justified before his presence. Do you, can you wrap your minds around that and, and comprehend the wealth that you have, the position that you have before him? 
Now, here's, here's the breakdown that we have. We can say we understand this. We can say that we, uh, we understand this in our heads, and yet we doubt it, don't we? We still doubt it. Or maybe you don't. If you don't, that's great. <clears throat> I, I, I'm proud of you. I, 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 doubt, I, I, I doubt all the time. I doubt my positioning before the Father all the time. But for some of us, when we struggle with sin day after day, week after week, year after day, sometimes it's hard to understand that we are in Christ. And if we are in Christ, why do we still struggle with sin? Why do we still struggle? If we have the right standing before the Father, what's the point of sin? Why do we still struggle with it? It's a tough question. He could have done it another way, I suppose, right? He could have allowed us to struggle with sin, and upon the realization of our salvation, our struggle with sin could have been ended. Wouldn't that have been fantastic? The moment you're saved, we no longer struggle with sin. Yet we do. Yet we still do. Why is that? Why did the Lord do it that way? Why not the moment that we're saved? Why can't we be free from sin? Do you have any guesses? What? Our need of Jesus would be realized as less. Do you understand that? Does someone, someone have another response, or are we good with that one? I like it. What were we going to say, Howard? Now, he's not directly addressing it here in Romans 9.22, but he, he, he's getting at this. Okay, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy. Vessels of mercy is what I see here, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Would we, get, would, we, would we really have a sense of his glory if not for the fact that we, we struggle? We, we see his wrath, okay? Again, there's a lot that can be said about this, this particular verse, but the central truth underlying it is worth highlighting. In other words, this is what he's saying. Maybe God did this. Maybe he allows sin and suffering to linger so we get a better understanding and grasp of his glory. All right? How can we really understand his glory if we don't have an understanding of, of what the absence of his glory is like? Can we, can we really appreciate a good meal if we've never had a bad one? Have you ever had a bad meal? <laughs> Have you ever had a... I was listening to some talk show, uh, podcast. Po- talk shows, what they said in the 80s. <laughs> podcast, and they were talking about, you know, if you could only eat from one restaurant... You know, for the rest of your life, what would it be? Just one. And someone picked something like Western Sizzlin. <laughs> <laughs> because it has steak and it has like, no, 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 no. <laughs> if you've had a Western Sizzlin steak, can you, really, can you really have a sense? Can you really have a sense of what a good steak is? <laughs> Unless you've had a Western Sizzlin steak. <laughs> oh, this is recording. I love Western Sizzlin. <laughs> I should bleep that out. Can we really appreciate wealth? If we've never lived in poverty. Okay, I think this is what Paul is telling us in Romans. Now, is there more to it than that? Of course, I'm certain of it. But I do think that gives us a hint. This is, this is here. We struggle with sin because it does enhance our awareness of, of our need for him. And we get a better sense of his glory for him. But that does not take away from the fact that you have an eternal inheritance. It does not diminish that one iota. You have that. The fact that though we struggle now, it, it doesn't alter our eternal inheritance. 
it doesn't alter our legal standing before the Father in Christ. We have every spiritual blessing. That's what we've been given. That's what we inherit, okay? Now, the next handful of verses, he begins detailing more of what that means to be in Christ and afforded every spiritual blessing. But I'm going to put a pin in it there because we've just come to a landing at 946, okay? So let's put a pin in it there and, and we'll pick this up next week. Besides, that's all the notes that I have. <laughs> so uh, any final questions, thoughts, comments, anything at all? Yes. <laughs> Yeah. Because of this guy. Yeah. Yeah. Yes and no. Okay. So yeah, for sure that I think people within the church, the question was for the recording, uh, wouldn't there have been people that would have known who Saul was, you know, and now he's preaching the gospel as Paul, wouldn't they have known that? A couple answers to that. Number one, this is, this is a common misconception. A lot of people believe that at his conversion, Saul's name was changed to Paul. Not, not so, not so. Uh, is that a shock to anybody? Yeah, that didn't happen. Uh, Saul is more his Hebrew name. Paul is more his Gentile name. It's, it's, a, it's a translation of the same name. So when he went out into the Gentile world, he was using his Gentile, the Gentile version of his name. That's why there's almost a, 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 this unceremonious moment in Acts where all of a sudden it goes from Saul to Paul. Just all of a sudden he starts referring to himself as Paul right before his first missionary journey. Okay, so number one, so there have been a lot of people who had no idea who Paul was. But that serves to make testimony. If this guy, of all people, if this guy of all people now proclaims the wonders of Christ, something is up here. It, I mean, oh gosh, I could use political terms here. It'd be like if, 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 if one guy suddenly changed parties. Or, you know, one person that like, think of the most, like a, a Pelosi becomes a Republican or a, uh, a Trump becomes a Democrat. Something like, something along, what happened? What happened there? What happened? So I, I think that goes along the lines. I'm sure there are people that, that met, even in Acts, when, 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 Paul, <laughs> when, when Paul was first converted, right? And, and uh, the Lord was given a vision to another one of the, the uh, um, uh, disciples slash apostles, someone, someone who, like, the reaction was like, Lord, are you sure? Do you know who this is? And the Lord's like, yeah, 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 I know who it is, right? So yes, I'm sure there was some skepticism at first, but again, the mere fact of who he was and what he did, and now he's, he's proclaiming the wonders of Christ, something is up. Something is up. Good question, though. Anyone else? Thoughts, comments? Yes, sir. Tell me your name. Jeff. 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 What's your comment or question? First time caller? Yeah? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, he, he, had a, he had a crew with him, okay? He had a lot of people with him that were likely imprisoned along with him, not only Paul. As a matter of fact, uh, the gospel of uh, Luke. Was Luke an apostle? Hmm? No. Mm -mm. He, uh, Luke uh, was Paul's companion. And so likely, you know, that's why, that's why we give, we were talking about credibility at the start of this uh, discussion, you know, what gives the, the pen of this letter or the ink of this letter credibility it's because of Luke's association with Paul. So he had, he had an entire crew with him that likely would have been imprisoned along with him. But there were, I'm sure there were instances too, because of who he was, he was also just 
made to suffer, left to suffer, because he's the, the head behind the organization. So, yeah, I think there are people that either were imprisoned with him in the cell or stuck around with him to still assist him and help him and support him. So that's why the we. With one other question, kind of a timeline question. Mm -hmm. Tychicus. Mm -hmm. He must have been delivering them simultaneously as opposed to going back to Rome to pick up the second letter. Right. Yeah, I think there was a circuitous uh, way about it. So again, Paul may have had other letters that we don't have, but we have those two, which might have been delivered in succession, maybe. Uh, or, like you said, you know, when you think about, okay, Paul is writing a letter to the Ephesians, or to the, to the Colossians. It's not that necessarily that Tychicus then went to Colossae and then came back, Right. As he finished his letter, he probably went on to the next letter before this first letter to the Colossians was even delivered. Finished what he was writing. This is my speculation. Finish writing his letter to the Ephesians and then maybe and even other letters. And then Tychicus would have taken off delivering letters to numerous churches throughout, the, throughout Asia Minor. So, mm -hmm. All right. Yeah. Just for context, real yeah. quickly, would, um, would this time in prison would have been that time when he basically was in house arrest? Yes, yes and no. So yes, sometimes we think of it as a literal cell, which he was in sometimes too, but there are also times he was under house arrest too. So again, what was the exact nature of his imprisonment here? Not sure, but could have been one of the two. Why was he imprisoned? For proclaiming the gospel. Yeah, for, for be, and back then it would have been viewed as uh, subversive to the Roman government. So because, there, was a, there was a Roman statue that came out. Yeah, because if you're... It wasn't necessarily that they were promoting religion, but the fact that they wouldn't say Kaiser Curio, Kaiser Caesar is Lord, instead they were saying Jesus is Lord, and that is an act of subversion to the Roman government. And so, by that alone, uh, is is and not only him, but other Christians too would have been in prison, just for merely their confession that Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. So, and again, there was a lot of people that viewed, by especially by the time Nero was in power, that viewed the Christian the followers of Christ to be subversive, to be doing something very, very, a lot of comparisons that you can make today, calling evil good and good evil. Uh, when you talk about, there's people that would accuse Christians of being bad people because of the, some of the things that they support politically. In a, and for some of it's like, why would you consider that bad? Because it goes against the cultural mores of the day. Same thing back then. Just for going against the cultural mores, there, there was a view of subversiveness to what the, the Roman structure was trying to build and, and trying to uphold. And so they were in prison for, for a lot of those, even political reasons too. So, all right, let's, uh, I want to give you time to get to our one survey. I, I don't know what's, I don't know if it's gonna be crowded in there today. So let's, uh, uh, let's uh, let you get there. Do, uh, would someone like to close us in prayer? Just anyone, just a brief word of thanks and, and prayer. Spencer, thank you. Mm -hmm.